Now you can stand, and I'm going to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So in the previous paragraphs in this chapter, Paul was telling the Corinthians how the bodily resurrection of Jesus is essential to our faith. If it didn't happen, then our faith is in vain. There would be no solution for our sinful condition, for Jesus' resurrection was the verification that his sacrifice was accepted by God. Then Paul wrote about how different our new bodies will be from these earthly bodies. And in today's passage, he continues on that theme, but he moves on to the conclusion of how that should affect our lives. Verse 50 again, he says, I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Our earthly bodies were born of this fallen world, and they have a, a limited lifespan. To enter our eternal home, we have to be changed and have that unfallen nature like that of Adam in the garden before the fall, or like that of Jesus after the resurrection. Jesus was born in a body of earth like ours, but he had no sin nature. He was physical, but his blood was poured out on the cross. His risen body had the same elements, but was free of the curse of the world that, that followed Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. That curse made every created thing in this world subject to decay. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. That does not mean our eternal bodies will not be physical. It was an expression that meant our present corporal beings. Um, we use this expression in the same way. When we say flesh and blood, we're just talking about our present human condition. There are only two types of things, perishable things and imperishable things. The world and all physical things in it, including our bodies, are perishable. If we keep that in mind, then our focus in life is going to change. Jesus told us we're not to work for the things that perish, but for what is eternal. 
to make it possible for us to have the same change that took place in his body, he had to shed all his blood as a penalty for our sins. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and the wages of sin is death. He had to be planted in the ground, Jesus said, like a grain of wheat is planted in the ground. He knew that by doing so, he could give that needed transfusion of spiritual life to as many as would receive him, making Adam's sons and daughters brothers and sisters of the second Adam. He who was imperishable took on our mortal flesh to defeat death and make a way for perishable mortals to have imperishable bodies. Peter declares that we have been born again of imperishable seed, the word of God. Amen. So that's why when we're planted, we'll come up as a new creation because we've been born again of that imperishable seed, the word of God. That's in 1 Peter 1.23. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Behold, or listen. It's kind of, when you see that word in, in the Bible, it means listen to this. Tune in, this is important. Paul is telling us something only God could reveal to mankind. Now, we should have seen it, he said already in the previous passage, in nature and looking at the, the seed. Or we Last week, we talked about the metamorphosis of a caterpillar into a butterfly. We should have seen those things, but really, it was it's just too far of a leap for humankind, the human mind to accept. God had to reveal the mystery of resurrection. Jews used the expression sleep to refer to death. We will not all die because some believers will be alive when Jesus returns. We will be made different, like Jesus' glorious body. The spirits of the dead in Christ will return with the Lord and their transformed bodies will rise to meet them in the air. And then believers who are still alive and will be transformed to rise and meet them. May it be soon, Lord Jesus, amen. The flood in Noah's day temporarily ended the suffering caused by sin and cleansed the earth while Noah and his family were lifted above it and arrived on a cleansed planet. In a similar way, Jesus will lift us up out of this world and bring us back to a cleansed one. It's a start over. Only then we will be his perfected ambassadors in the earth. Verse 52, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. The change will be instantaneous. The Greek word is atomos, which, from which we get the word atom, just in a split second. That's why it says twinkling of an eye. Will be instantly different. Boom. That's going to be awesome. Amen. Many verses in the Old Testament speak of the Lord's coming being preceded by a trumpet blast. Speculation about the last trumpet. What does that mean? People have tried to figure out because they're 
a lot of people like to study this end time things. And so they said, when is the last trumpet? Is it, is it the last trumpet like in the tribulation trumpets? Well, Revelation hadn't been written yet. So I kind of doubt that's what Paul was referring to. Others say, no, it's like uh, the camps of Israel. When they blew the trumpet, it meant they were getting ready. The cloud was moving. They had to pick up camp and go. It's, it'll be our signal that we're, we're leaving this camp for a whole new camp where we'll be going. That may be similar. Passages about the day of the Lord mentioning a trumpet blast uh, are numerous in Scripture. The trumpet heralds the end of one age and the beginning of another when the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. So the last trumpet, I believe, is probably referring to the announcing of the final age, which is the eternal age. It's encouraging to note that that surety with which Paul says these things will happen. He says the trumpet will sound the dead will be raised. We shall be changed. These are definitive statements. He's sure this is going to happen. He's not speculating. God revealed this to him in nature and in the word. And it's the same thing that Jesus taught. In John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus said, Don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Just as Jesus called the rotting corpse of Lazarus back to the wholeness of life, so will he call our bodies to rise to an immortal condition. He promised to raise everyone who believes in him. He is the resurrection and the life. And even if one who believes in him dies, Jesus says, yet shall he live. There's no ambiguity with Jesus either. Verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. We must be remade for our new heavenly environment. In the previous passage, he told us about different kinds of flesh, the flesh of fish and the flesh of birds. Each creature is designed for its environment. We could not be in Jesus' glorified presence or stand before God's throne in the bodies we have now. We, we've been talking about that in the Bible study this morning. We couldn't join the heavenly choir with adequate voices. It sounded really good when we were singing a cappella, but you know what? When we get to heaven, whoa. Amen. Everyone will have perfect pitch, perfect harmonies. It'll be amazing. Man. Uh, you know, I went to the Promise Keeper conferences and uh, uh, sometimes 40 or 50,000 men would be singing How Great Thou Art. Woo! Man, that sent chills down your back. It's going to be even greater than that. Infinitely greater than that. Uh, then... We will be in form and substance fully able without anything to hold us back or weigh us down. Perfect harmonies will come out of our mouths. Adoration and praise that God deserves will pour from our hearts. Our minds will not wonder or be limited, but will know even as we are known. 
Paul's using this change of, uh, of clothing metaphor that we see in other scriptures and in, in other places that Paul writes. He used it in Romans 13, 14 and 2 Corinthians 5, 2 and 4 and, and elsewhere about putting on Jesus for living the Christian life. And he uses it here in conjunction with his teaching on lifting the curse from the physical world. The saints who return with the Lord to judge the earth are said to be clothed in fine linen, white and pure, which is symbolic of our sinless condition. While we are to put Christ on now, in other words, expressing his attributes, the fruits of the Holy Spirit now, love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness, and goodness, we realize we often allow the flesh to be evident instead. But then the passing fallen nature will be no more. Our robe of Christ will be our permanent in our attire. And our entire being will be, so that weakness will be vanquished forever. Praise God. Paul's letter to the Ephesians goes so far as to say that we will be filled to all the fullness of God. What an expression. It was his prayer asking the, the Ephesians might know, know the love of God so that they might be filled to all the fullness of God. When we see Jesus in glory, that prayer is going to be fully answered. Now, that doesn't mean that we will be the same as God, but the attributes of God that we are capable of receiving, which are the fruits of the Spirit, will be fully expressed through us. We aim at that high calling now, and, and sometimes we experience it in part, but then we'll arrive at this goal of Christ-likeness. Hallelujah. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death will, will be swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So this time of transformation that was predicted in, in Isaiah 25, 6 to 9 and Hosea 13, verse 14, is what he's quoting here. He's put these two verses together. And that Isaiah passage speaks of God bringing salvation to all the nations of the world. And that corresponds to Jesus' prediction that he wouldn't return until his gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness. Then the end will come. The Hosea passage is warning to a warning to Israel that that they will perish unless God rescues them from the power of the grave. So Paul uses, uh, his use of Hosea is a, a fluid adaption linked to Isaiah verse 25 by the keyword victory in a, a mutually interpretive fashion. And Collins explains that this method of citation is akin to the way in which scriptures were used in rabbinic commentaries in their Targums and in the Qumran uh, midrashim, their writings, they would take, uh, uh, even though they're completely different passages, even different topics, but because there was a similar word, they'd bring those verses together. And that's what Paul has done here. But I don't think he's done it haphazardly just because of the same word. 
I think he understands that when the whole world hears the gospel, the time of Jacob's trouble predicted in, in Zechariah is going to come when the nation of Israel will repent and turn to the Lord so that they're happening at the, that same time. Jesus has the keys of death and hell even now. We know from Revelation chapter 1. But then death will be destroyed so that God will be all in all. Christ has taken the sting of death upon himself so that we wouldn't have to suffer it. The sting is sin, for the soul that sins must die. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The sting of death is that venom of sin, for without, without being redeemed, death means we're going to eternal judgment. The law demands justice. And if it's not met on the cross, if Jesus' gift of grace earned upon that cross is rejected, then we have to face that judgment ourselves. Those in Christ are victorious because we are in the victorious one. And while we don't mourn as those who have no hope, death, it's still a separation and it's painful for those who remain. But then, it will forever be done and over with, and there will be no more death and no more separation. Hallelujah. One of the saddest things in life is that, is that separation that death brings from a loved one, especially if the person is young. While we don't mourn as the world does because we know we'll be together again, that time of separation is not God's original intent. It entered the world as a curse upon sin. It's painful. If it's someone very dear to us, it stays with us all our earthly lives. But thank God we are promised that a day is coming when separation will be no more. The sting will be gone because sin and death will be no more. And when we are perfected, there will be no need for the law. That can only happen on that day when he makes us whole. Just imagine it. No temptation to sin. No selfishness. Only love and worship from purified hearts. Verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. He did what we couldn't do. And so we don't fear death. For it has no sting for us who are in Jesus. If we'll trust him, he takes our sins and gives us his righteousness. We have peace with God and we can face death and life without fear. We can rejoice when our redeemed loved one goes on to glory. We can refuse sin and be obedient to the spirit. Knowing this is our certain future, how should we be living until that day comes? Sir Winston Churchill declared, you ask, what is our policy? I can say it's to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all our strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That's our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer with one word, victory. 
Victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror, victory however long and hard the road may be, for without victory there is no survival. How much more applicable is Churchill's message to the greatest enemy of humanity, death? Jesus said, Satan has come to kill, steal, and destroy, but he's already defeated. Jesus gives us abundant life now and throughout eternity. We just need to be in that victory he already won for us on the cross. Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Therefore, be steadfast and immovable. Paul's telling us that the certainty of resurrection and its implications for us are key motivations for us to stand firm in our faith until our own resurrection comes because we will be raised. Whatever we face now has an eternal purpose. Our work will be rewarded. These light and momentary afflictions are not to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. To be steadfast is to be fixed, determined, purposed, faithful to the end. We have a reason to be steadfast, unwavering, as we are laboring for God's eternal kingdom. Immovable is to be unyielding, unshaken, and undisturbed. Don't be moved by the difficulties we face or the world's threats. Like Paul, be constantly overflowing with the work of Christ. The Greek word for labor in this case, your labor in the Lord, always means never cease, never stop, never slacken up, never quit, never retire. Jumping back to verse 49 in chapter 15 from last week, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That is what we're looking forward to. That's why we should be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Our work in the Lord, not the flesh, our work will be rewarded. Verse 58, that last verse telling us to remain steadfast, is the instructive conclusion of the chapter and maybe even the whole letter when this glorious future that we are destined uh, to experience, how can we get caught up competing over who's the best leader, our rights that might stumble a brother, sexual immorality, lawsuits against believer, pride in our gifts, demanding to be heard or listening to teachers that don't know God. Those were all the things that he was challenging the Corinthians to let go of and walk away from. We are soon to experience the end of all things as we now experience them. There will be a sudden and total change. Sin and death will be no more. Heavenly rewards will be distributed to the faithful. Rewards that are so glorious we can't even presently grasp the wonder of them. We're going to the very presence of the glorified Christ, which is probably the greatest reward of all. I wanna add just a brief word on rewards because sometimes uh, we stumble over this. We know we're undeserving 
And yet we read this um, fact about rewards in heaven for obedience to Christ all throughout the scriptures. Jesus commanded us, in fact, to lay up our treasure in heaven. And God is just. He pays his workers. That's why the Old Testament commanded employers not to withhold wages because that's what God is like. He's just. We don't work to be rewarded. We obey the Spirit because we have surrendered our lives. And that's our duty. Anything less would be ungrateful for all he's done for us. Nevertheless, he promises a reward for our labor. That's not our main motivation, but it should certainly encourage us. Hold fast to this good news. The promise is so incredible, we really can't imagine it. Don't lose heart or be sidetracked lest your labor be in vain. Press on through this short life. Eternity is before us. Our reward is waiting for us. Jesus longs to finish the work in us and welcome us home. We're going to the wedding feast of the Lamb. What joy and glory await us there is beyond our present comprehension. But we know that God tells us that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. If we truly believe us, then we will act accordingly by the grace of God. Amen? Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song? And then I'll give the benediction.